Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Let's begin by looking at the beginning of the notes, not the outline itself, but kind of the notes that I have of the, the script that I have at the top. And because I think this is the whole point. And it says the kingdom of God comes through the cross. So what I'd like to state from the beginning, just, hey, here's the end and here's the whole nutshell. Okay, good. Let's go home and be happy now after five minutes is that the kingdom of God is the fulfillment of all that God was promising throughout the Old Testament. And it's the fulfillment of God's promised kingdom. And so we spent a lot of time in the blogs that I wrote also on justice and righteousness in the Old Testament story. And you see how God was ultimately calling Israel to build a kingdom that was predicated on righteousness and justice. With that being said, we don't have to really go very far in the, in the New Testament then, because the answer is, if the New Testament's the fulfillment of that kingdom, then guess where right, righteousness and justice fit in? It's the essence of the kingdom. But the way I'd like to maybe phrase it would be the way we've been phrasing it, I think, or I hope all along, and that is distinguishing between the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of God. So the kingdoms of the world use power and military might and stepping on the little guy to get ahead and to stay in power. I mean, that's just the nature of kingdoms. It makes it worse when you have sinful people in charge of these kingdoms. But sometimes you get kingdoms where there are pretty good people up there for a little while and eventually power and whatever it is corrupts. But the point is, that's simply the nature of these kingdoms. Power, military might, stepping on the other, that's the way they advance, that's the way they are established. The kingdom of God, however, is established by the cross. It's established through love. Power in the God's kingdom is love. And love in God's kingdom is a sacrificial love that lays down its life for the other. And that's why we said the last several weeks, you can't take this kind of a kingdom and impose it on any nation. So the idea Christians have had in the past, we're going to impose Christianity on a nation. It doesn't work. John Calvin tried it uh, in Geneva. Uh, Christians believe this is what's going to, some believe this is what's going to happen in the last days type of thing. Or you even get people that go, oh, Christian nationalism, that we should, America was a Christian nation. You can't do it because if our president, our leader says, you know, Mr. Putin, I love you so much. I'm going to lay down my life for you. Then we're going to be overrun by China, by Russia, by whoever it might be, and we won't exist. That's the great distinction between the two. It's the sacrificial love for the sake of the other. Any thoughts, questions? Come. I think I can think of a lot of questions. Any, any thoughts, comments, snide remarks? We'll take a snide remark. No? What I state in this particular paragraph is that when you read the Gospels, you have to read the Gospels in light of the fact that the cross was the moment of Jesus's coronation. That's when he received his kingdom. Now, you can argue that Jesus became the king at the baptism because he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. The word anointing in the Old Testament context refers to either being anointed as the priest or anointed as the king. So you can argue that Jesus was crowned the king at his baptism. And we know that his baptism even pointed towards the, the cross. You can certainly argue that he became the king on the cross. And I have on the notes here, 
he was crucified because the charge against him was the king of the Jews. The dialogue between Peter, between Jesus and Pilate was, so are you a king? And Jesus is like, yeah, I am, but my kingdom's none of this world in John 18. So he acknowledges even before Pilate, I'm a king. Pilate doesn't think his kingdom is enough as a threat because like it's some otherworldly kingdom. And he says, if it was of this king of this world, my men would come fighting and armed and we'd have an armed rebellion against you, Rome, and you'd have a problem. So Pilate doesn't perceive it to be a problem, but Jesus acknowledges, yes, I'm the king. If you read the rest of the gospels, they, the time before Herod, which is interesting, I think it's the gospel of Luke that puts Jesus before Herod. And they mocked him and spit on him and put a purple garment on him and uh, hail king of the Jews. And that's obviously in Mark's gospel also, hail king of the Jews. The gospel writers are telling us that part of the story not to simply say, look at all the bad things they did to Jesus, but to say, look at the irony of this. They're mocking him and hailing him as a king when he really actually is the king. And then, of course, they place the crown of thorns in his head. And the point then becomes, the, the gospel writers are telling you, you have to look at this as the moment of his coronation. He is being crowned the king. Now, you can also argue that he became the king at his ascension into heaven. So I'm skipping the resurrection. Certainly the resurrection is the pivotal moment for the new creation. So if you want to say, when did the new creation begin? You might say at the resurrection of Jesus. And if you want to equate, I hope I'm not going to lose you on this, but if you want to equate the kingdom of God and the new creation, that's fine. And so if you wanted to do that, you'd say, well, the Jesus became the king at his resurrection. And then because that's when the new creation began. The resurrection of Jesus is the first fruit of the new creation. So you can argue for the resurrection there. But his ascension, anybody know, what did he do when he ascended into heaven? After he ascended, he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down at the right hand of God. He's taking his seat on the throne. He's taking his seat on the throne. He is saying, I'm the king. Here we go. God's throne is the throne, you know, heaven is uh, my throne and the earth is my footstool. That's where God reigns from, is from his throne. So, yeah, so I think you can argue for any of those things there, but certainly if that makes sense, then the cross was the significant central moment there. And that's fine if we want to say it, that, it, that it begins at the cross. The other thing I'd like to say about the cross is that the cross was always God's intention and Jesus' intention. He knew from the beginning that he was going to the cross. So, and that's central to understanding the gospels and the gospel story. We're going to Jerusalem and I'm going there to die. And that's the way I'm going to become crowned the king. And I don't think I need to discuss the Mark 8 passage again, where Peter says, no, Jesus can't do that. And Peter's like, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, and all that. So, so does that make sense? Any thoughts or any comments or no? The next thing I'd say that's central or the next uh, heading on the note says, Jesus calls his people to be kings and queens, is the fact that, and I've said this before in sermons, and I've said this before, probably before you guys as well, you know, hey, this is going to sound like a blasphemous statement, but let me explain before you throw me out of the church or before you stop the Zoom call or turn the podcast off. And the, what's going to sound like a blasphemous statement is the statement that says, Jesus didn't finish the job. Now, it totally sounds blasphemous, because most people think that the job is what? what? What would people say? What was Jesus' job? What was he? What did he come to do? Save the world. Okay. It's death and resurrection. Forgiveness. Death yeah, and yeah. resurrection. Okay. Yeah. So let's take both what John said initially and what Anna said there. 
his death and resurrection is the way he sa- he saves the world. But no, Jesus doesn't go to the world. He only ministered amongst the Jewish people and a couple of excursions outside the Jewish world. And even one of the excursions outside the Jewish world, he meets a Syrophoenician woman. He's like, hey, look, sorry, lady, don't take the food that's there for the children. And she's like, yeah, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the children's table. I'm not here to take the food away from Israel. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm here for the Jewish people right now. I'll send my disciples out to the Gentiles later. And there's a fascinating story in the Gospel of John that we'll, we'll cover in the podcast. And so... The point then is Jesus doesn't finish the job because the job is to take the gospel to the nations. Uh, Maybe I'll say it this way. The job was to make God known. Remember the Emmanuel principle that we did a few weeks back that God wills to be made known. The job was to make God known and Jesus only made God known to the Jews. Basically, there's a few exceptions, mind you. The job of making God known to the nations is our job. So if we say that's the job, the job of making God known. Now, included in that job description, I'm not denying, included in that job description was dying for our sins, rising again, establishing the new creation, bringing the kingdom of God. Absolutely. But the goal of the kingdom of God was to make him known throughout the entirety of creation. And this goes back to Adam and Eve. And guess what? We should do Genesis in a a few weeks because Adam and Eve were made to bear God's image, to make God known, to reflect his image and glory. And if you remember when we did Colossians, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So that means that it's actually our task to do this. And that's why we talked about discipleship and the nature of the kingdom is not about conversions. It's about discipling and about making disciples, not making converts because we do it. And I think we've talked about this also. So again, if you need me to slow down or repeat something, let me know. Because I think I'm saying stuff that I've said before, but if you weren't there, I get it. Yeah, go ahead, John. Uh, is there, uh, and there, you're probably going to tell me, yeah, John, there's a hundred of them. Um, is there a passage uh, that you can refer me that that states states Jesus' job was to make God known? Um, I would say that it's the story of the Bible, and okay. so nobody comes out and says it explicitly, except maybe John one. So I'd say kind of John one kind of does that, and let me kind of clarify that in a second, but it's this underlining biblical story that Jesus it, is jumping into. And I was, if it's Rob, the story of Israel and it's Israel's task, I guess I'd say Isaiah 42, six and Isaiah 49, six. That's is, is, Rob, yeah. Okay. Go ahead, John. Is, isn't it also mentioned in Genesis? Well, John, I think John's question was, John Gruber's question was, is there a verse that says that Jesus's job was to make God known? Oh, okay. And so I say, well, yeah, because yeah, John, you're right. If, if John Cove, you're right. If we say Genesis one, Adam and Eve are made in his, in his image, that's the the role of humanity. And then I'd say Isaiah forty two six, Isaiah forty nine six. You are my witnesses to the nations. You are the light of the world. So that's Israel's role. So if Jesus is Adam, so let's take John Cove's thought. If Jesus is Adam, and he is, he's the true Adam. That's the idea of Son of Man. He's, he's the true Adam. Then that's his role is to make God known, because that's what Adam's role was. If Jesus is the true Israel, and he's a suffering servant of Isaiah 53, that's Israel. And Israel's job was to make God known. You are my witnesses. How about Isaiah 43:10? also, John? Uh, you are my witnesses. That's Israel's role. Then obviously that's Jesus's role. And then I think you look at the introduction in the gospel of John. And John 1:14 and John 1:18, that we beheld his glory. And John 1:18 is, John 1.18 is a very confusing verse, 
but the, the essence of the verse is, it says, no one has ever seen God, and that, that God is the Father, but God the one and only, and that's Jesus, he's God the one and only, or God the only begotten. So no one's ever seen God, but God the one and only, who's in the bosom of the Father, means he sits at the right hand of the Father, has made him known. There you go. Jesus, God the Son, the, one, the only begotten, has made the Father known. And that's John's thesis statement. Here's the story I'm going to tell you about. And that story I'm telling you about is the fact that Jesus has made the Father known. And I, I maybe give you one more, John. In John 14, verses 6 through 9, I think it's actually verse 9, but 6 through 9. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And that's the mission fulfilled of what John 1.18 stated. So I think that should suffice. All right, anybody else? Yeah, Rob, I had a question. It's Peter. Yeah, hey, Peter. Um, so the, but the part after that where, um, okay, and then it's our job to, to make the nations. Know. Can you explain that part again? Like, yes, that works. Yes. So the way it works would be this. Jesus then comes along and says, all right, now here's the deal, guys. I'm going to give you my spirit. This is John 4, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. I'll kind of wrap the note in a nutshell. Jesus comes and says, okay, here's the deal, guys. The gospel needs to go out to the nations now. I'm going to check out, which we obviously it means he's going to die and rise again, all that good stuff. But don't worry about it because I'm not going to leave you as orphans. So you know that famous passage in John 14 that many of you might know, in my father's house are many mansions or many dwelling places, as William Tyndall translated as mansions, as many dwelling places, and I go to prepare a place for you. That passage, John 14, 1, 2, and 3, is often met, read to mean that, oh, Jesus is going to go to heaven and prepare a place for you there, and someday you'll come to heaven and be with him. I do not believe that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, this is what I think, I'm going to go away and I'm going to prepare a place here for you. And the place he's preparing here for you is I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. Because he says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So the question is, is that I will come to you mean someday Jesus is going to come back and return from heaven? Well, that kind of makes sense, but it doesn't make sense because he's talking to his disciples and he says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. But he doesn't ever come to them. And he did leave them as orphans. But not if the passage is talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. So I hope I'm giving, I'm giving you a long answer, Peter. I hope this is okay. <laughs> uh, but the point of that is, is that Jesus then says, I'm empowering you with my Holy Spirit. That's why the Gospel of Luke says, hey, don't go yet. Wait for the Holy Spirit. And the book of Acts begins with, yeah, stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. And when you get the Holy Spirit, we are now empowered with the temple presence of God. And as such, we are then to take the gospel to the nations as his witnesses. And I think I'd summarize, you know, 1 Peter 2, 9 is, let's look at 1 Peter 2, 9. I've referred to like 100 different verses and haven't asked you to stop at all. 1 Peter 2, 9, if somebody wants to read 1 Peter 2, 9. I made my church memorize this. I'm not sure how well they did it, but remember that, John Cove and Shirley? We did it for like three Sundays in a row, and we just kept saying it over and over and over again in service and said, okay, this is so central. So 1 Peter 2, 9, if someone wants to read it. I'll read it. Thank you very much, Jackie. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own, so that you may announce the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. 
Yeah. So I think this kind of summarizes it all. If we looked at the whole passage, it would even make more sense there. The answer is you are a chosen race, which is Exodus 19 language. God's talking to us as the new Israel, a royal priesthood. Remember a number of weeks ago, we did Romans 12, one and two offer your bodies as living sacrifices, but notice it's royal priesthood. So it's both Kings and priests. And then you're a holy nation. That's Leviticus 19, because we're temples, we're supposed to be holy, a people for God's own possession. So that, and the Greek is really emphatic on this. So if your translation just says that, it's not good enough because that's what that means. But I think so that, or in order that is the best way to translate that. And what so that means is, it means the, the purpose of this. The purpose of you being a royal priest at a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, chosen race, is so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And what I did one Sunday, I don't know if John should remember this, and good to see you, Gracia, who's on now as well, is I'm not sure if it was Mission Sunday or whatever it was. I said, you know, whenever somebody's going on a mission, whether it's a short-term mission or maybe it's a missionary that's coming here and we're sending them off, we always have them when they, you know, when they're done with the sermon or when they're done inter being interviewed or whatever, we have the elders and anybody else wants to come forward, lay hands on them and anoint them to go out into ministry. And I said, every single one of you in this congregation are called, those who know Jesus, we're all called to go out into the mission field. So we're all coming forward tonight or today. And er I made everyone get out of the, out of the pews and everyone get out of, out of their seats and come forward and we just laid hands on each other. And we commissioned them to say, now go out in the mission field. Now, with that being said, one more thing on that, uh, to hopefully finishing it, the answer to Peter's question, is we all have that different responsibility depending on what gifts, callings, and passions we have. Some of you might be teachers and your mission field, you might not be allowed to be explicit about Jesus in the classroom, but you're just living that out in front of these kids or, or whoever it might be that you're teaching. You're just ministering to them and showing them Jesus and showing them an alternative way of, of what Jesus looks like. Some of you are just in your workplace. Some of you are retired and it might be just in your social environments. Some of you might be in your communities, in, in your neighborhoods. Some of you might be in um, Rotary. I know some of you are in Rotary. It might be in Rotary. It might be in um, sports and whatever, whatever communities you're... And it doesn't mean that you have to go out and say, here are the four spiritual laws, which I don't think is a very good way to do it anyways. It's, you know, and I used to say this a, a lot when I was preaching and that is, and the statement was, there are five gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and your life. And most people don't read the first four. <laughs> so I think that's the answer is we just embody Jesus to the nations and to the people. And I think that's a whole lot better than just being in their face about Jesus and, and you got, you're going to die in your sins. I just don't think that's going to work. Does that help? I think, I hope that answers Peter's question. And, and yeah, thanks. yeah, you're yeah, welcome. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Talking about Satan, how, how can he, I mean, everything's foretold and it's going to happen anyway. So he knows that he's going to end up in a really bad place. Right. So what, why does he just keep doing? I mean, is there any hope for him to change his mind? I'm just curious about that. You know, it's yeah. So I would simply say that from what we can tell, he cannot be redeemed. 
And the reason why is because angels can't die. To be redeemed, you have to be able to die and rise again. And I think what we seem to understand is that angels can't die. And again, what does that mean? I don't know. Angels, do they have a body? Yeah, they definitely have a location. And they, But it seems that they can't die and therefore they can't be redeemed. But I'm just kind of guessing at that one too. Let's just be honest. The question is actually, does Satan believe it? Now, the way to think about that would be this. When you read the Gospels and Jesus walking around telling stories, nobody believed him. Why? Because he wasn't making sense. He wasn't saying what they were expecting him to be saying. He was talking about an alternative kingdom. And even John the Baptist sends an embassy to an entourage to Jesus saying, are you the Christ or not? Because if you are, where's your army? If you are, why hasn't Rome been overthrown yet? You know, what's going on here? And we know that in the Gospels, the answer is, if you want the answer, you have to come to Jesus. If you have eyes to see and ears to hear, you come to Jesus and he'll give you the answer. Now, certainly after Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is given and we have an understanding of, of the Gospels and of the ministry of Jesus and the nature of the kingdom of God and his parables. So the question is, is did, how did the devil know? He had the same Old Testament as, as everybody else had, but they missed him too. And I think you see in, in Corinthians, it says, had, had the powers that be known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. I think they thought they had a victory in the cross. And again, I'm guessing, that's totally a guess because we don't know. Makes some sense at least to think, yeah, cool, we got them. Oh, what, you know, what, what do you mean? Right? There's a, obviously I do a lot of work in the book of Revelation and there's an old black preacher story that says, uh, he's up preaching Revelation chapter one and it says, uh, where Jesus says, I am, the first and the last, living and the dead. I have the keys of, of death and Hades. And the, and the black preacher goes, he got away, he got away, and he's got the keys. You can see the devil going, oh no, he got away, and he's got the keys. But that's all we can do. So I, I just don't think the devil understood. I mean, the disciples didn't understand, and Jesus was walking around with them for a couple of years, and like, uh, no, Jesus, no. Peter rebukes him. So I think that might be our best answer. Does that help? So here we go. So that's the two key themes that we wanted to talk about was the cross, the centrality of the cross for the, for the justice and righteousness and what it means, the distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world. And then the next key element is that we are called to be kings and queens for him, making him known. That's the nature of the church's mission. All right, so let's go down to the notes then. And some of this is just going to be summarizing what we've already said. So I kind of so it begins with a, state, with a statement, understanding the nature of the kingdom of God and justice in the New Testament. John 13, 35, blank is the essential feature of the kingdom of God. Anybody want to read the verse or fill in the blank and know what it is? Thank you. I just, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There you go. So what's the essential feature of the kingdom? Love. L love. Yeah, love. And it's the next one, John 15, verse 13. Does somebody want to read that? John 15, verse 13. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Yeah. So love lays down one's life for the other. I like to throw in Romans 5.8 at this point in time, too, because Romans 5.8 says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So if we say love lays down one's life for the other, and we use John 15.13, well, it says that you lay down your life for your friends. But Romans 5.8 says, Jesus laid down his life for us while we were still his enemies. 
So the cross was and is a central feature of the kingdom of God. I've already talked about that. The Mark 8, 27 to 34 passage is Jesus saying, who do you think I am? Oh, you're the Christ. Great. But I'm going to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed. Peter rebukes him, it says. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, because you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. And then Mark 8, 34 says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, they need to take up their cross and follow me. So I think that's just central to the essence of the new of the new testament story then did i go over that too quickly anybody need me to repeat the mark a pass i think we've just discussed it a few times and i mentioned it earlier so luke 6 luke 638 somebody want to read luke 638 yeah andrew thank you andrew in this esv give and it will be given to you good measure press down shaken together run o- running over will be put into your lap or with the measure you you use it will be measured back to you. Okay, so the fill in the blank is that love includes just measures. Love includes just measures. It's, it has economic application. So love has an economic application. It includes just measures. Now, let me discuss this just for a few minutes here. One of the things that you should probably note down if you haven't already noted it, and we haven't spent a lot of time in it, is Leviticus chapter 19. So Leviticus 19, I think it's verse two says, be holy because I, the Lord, your God, I'm holy. And we call it the holiness chapter. So just kind of note it down. And maybe if you get a chance later on tonight or tomorrow, whenever you can kind of look through the holiness chapter, the holiness chapter kind of is the essence of the ethic of the Old Testament people of God. They're, they're called to do justice. And what does it look like? Well, read Leviticus 19. That tells you what justice looks like in Leviticus 19, where Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's where that second great commandment comes from is Leviticus 19. In Leviticus 19, near the end of the chapter, it talks about the fact that holiness means a just weight, a just ephah, a just measure, a just hen. And what those are talking about is they're talking about measurements, weights. They'd be saying like a just quart or a just gallon or a just pound. And what you did in the ancient world is you simply tricked up the scales so that Oh yeah, I'm giving you, I'll just use modern American terminology, a pound of grain, but it's not a pound of grain because I tricked the scales up. It's like maybe three quarters of a pound of grain. And what that means is, and a pound of grain costs $2. I'm profiting on this because I'm, I'm exploiting the purchaser from that. That's simply the way it works. And if you don't do that and you give them a just measure well, you're not going to stay in business as long because the reality is your grain's going to run out faster than the guy next to you because he's giving $2 for three quarters of a pound and you're giving $2 for a pound. But justice, it says, is to say, no, give them a fair weight and a fair measure. Now, the reason why I bring this in is because Luke 6 is the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Luke. And in the Gospel of Luke, the Sermon on the Mount is summarized as love. Love without expecting anything in return. And then if you look at the end of Luke 6, which that's where 38 kind of is in the summary part portion of it, it says that the, the passage that we just read, and that says, they will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. If, let's say you're measuring out rice or something like that. And you shake it and the rice settles. And then you put it over, you put more in and then you pat it down and then you put more in you're giving not only a fair shake, a really fair shake of grain or rice or whatever it is, 
And that's what love looks like because this whole passage has been about love. So love has this economic impact upon the people who you were taking advantage of. And the people that are being taken advantage of are the poor who can barely afford it anyways. And they have no recourse to justice because they can't go to the authorities. They can't go to the courts. No one's going to listen to them. And I think that's the essence of what Luke 6.38 is talking about. Does that make sense? Now, with that being said, let's go back a few verses earlier to Luke 6, verse 35. Somebody wants to read that. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Let me give a quick shout for the podcast. So Vinny and I are doing a series of podcasts kind of corresponding to anyone who's doing the devotional study guide, reading through the New Testament in a year. So you can do just the podcast, you can do the devotional guide, or you can do them both together. And we're doing seven episodes on the Gospel of Luke. So we did four on math, on Mark. I think we did six on Matthew. And we're going to do seven on, Mar on Luke. So by the time we're done with all these, we really, I think, hopefully have a good grasp on what Jesus is talking about. And Luke, this is the center of Luke's story. Lend without expecting anything in return. And of course, the people who are asking are the poor, and they just can't afford to pay you back. And Jesus' answer is, give to those guys which would have been unheard of in the ancient Roman economy. You just simply don't do that. In fact, it's considered foolishness to give and not expect anything in return. It gives you no advantage. And so why would you do that? So we really spent a lot of time on this and we will continue to spend a lot of time on this. And then Vinny and I spent a couple of, a couple of episodes where we said, okay, what does this mean today? And how do we apply this today? We're kind of grappling with this. And then we're going to have on a guest in early April, we have, a, a, we have two guests coming in for the book of Gospel of Luke, one that's going to really help us with the Roman context and the Roman world, a brilliant scholar. And then we're going to have Lisa Sharon Harper, who's an African-American woman. We're just going, to, okay, what does this look like, justice in the New Testament world? And then how does, it, how does this apply to us in America? And we're going to just really grapple with these questions. And one of the things I'll say to you now, and that is, hey, guys, we might not always agree with each other. So that's fine. Let's just, let's, let's wrestle with these things, though. Let's stop only listening to the voices that we always agree with all the time. And as soon as they disagree with you, I'm turning them off. Let's grapple it. Let's hear an African-American woman's story and what she has to say and go, I am really, really uncomfortable right now. And be fine with that. And then go, you know, I don't think I agree either. Okay, cool. But let's grapple with that. So we're going to do that a lot in the Gospel of Luke study. So I encourage you to listen to the podcast there. The fill in the blank is love those who are poor and marginalized. That's the ones who you're lending to without expecting anything in return, because that's what God does. I think this is really powerful. It's one of those, poof, right? Your mind explodes and opens up. I never thought of it that way. And here's the way I would express it. God loves everyone. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, period. God loves everyone. By definition, everyone is below God. That means God loves everyone that's below him. And what Luke is saying is that when you love those who are below you, socially, economically, whatever it might be, when you love those who are poor, marginalized, ostracized, outsiders, whatever it might be, the oppressed, you're doing what God does. Yeah, that's what love looks like. So note the verse 38 that we just looked at is three verses after this 
summary of love and 635 is kind of the summary of love because he's been talking about that for a number of verses beforehand. Therefore, I'm saying, yes, love has just measures. That's economic. That fits the context there. And now loving those in poor and marginalized is what God does. You'll be children of the most high. So that makes sense? Yeah, please. So when, when God does this for us, is he not also hoping that we... I mean, he, he's hoping to see that we are becoming something, right? Mm-hmm. That we don't just take his love and squander it. Right. So yes. isn't yes. that what we're also hoping for, for the people below us, yes. that we, we love them in the hope that they can take it in and do something with it for themselves as opposed to squander it and just use it and waste it? Because when Jesus speaks to people like the you know, the woman who was being rocks were being thrown at her he yeah. he he loved her and he said sin no more right. like i'm here's an opportunity take yeah. this i love you go do something with your life yes so i'm kind of going to address that and the next couple of points below this on the notes okay. i would say and i like the way you phrased it because you said that there's a hope that they're going to do something with it. In other words, our, our giving of love is not conditional on whether they do something with it or not. It's just hoping that they do. And I think that's an important paradigm shift almost for me at least and for others to say, yeah, I'm not giving conditionally. I'm giving unconditionally. And I'm just hoping that this becomes transformative for you. I think that's great. So, yep, somebody else? No? So the next thing on the notes then is, is Jesus's miracles were assigned to the kingdom of God. And I think this is really important. Jesus himself says that when I cast out demons by the finger of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you, right? So you see that the things he was doing were manifesting the kingdom of God. In other words, don't read Jesus's miracles as proof to who he was. Let me, let me prove to you who I am. I can forgive this person's sins or I can heal this person or I can cause the dead to rise. Well, maybe that's a result of what he was doing, but that wasn't the purpose of what he was doing or why he was doing it. He was doing it because they manifest what the nature of the kingdom of God is. So I put down two notes underneath that. Number one, it's a prelude of what is to come. So for example, he'll heal a blind person. And the idea of that is there's no blindness in my kingdom. He might raise a person from the dead, but note that person's going to die again. In other words, when he raised them from the dead, it doesn't say, there you go. Now you have eternal life. No, they're going to die again. But his raising them from the dead says, I am the resurrection and the life. This is what the gospel of John does, right? His miracles are signs as to who he was and the nature of his kingdom. So they're preludes of what is to come. The blind person might even go blind again. Maybe they get hit, hit with a rock. Maybe they get beaten. Maybe some unfortunate thing happens. Maybe they they have some natural thing that reverses Jesus's miracles 30 years later, as we all have to wear reading glasses at some point in time. Maybe there's just got really, really bad. The point of that was his miracles were signs as to something greater and and notably as a prelude to the kingdom of God. But the second point is, is this, and I put down Luke 7 in the parentheses after that. They focus on social and economic restoration. And this is the way I would say it. And then let's look at a couple of miracles in Luke chapter seven. The goal in Luke chapter seven, Luke chapter six is not to do good things for the poor, 
so that they have food for today, but to do good things for the poor so that they're no longer poor. And we're gonna look at Deuteronomy 15 in a, in a few minutes. That's actually the goal. The goal is to alleviate poverty. So a great example of that would be, well, like World Vision, where they go in and they help give restor restoration to a community and they teach a community how to do things and how to uh, have an economy amongst them. They don't just give the kids money and give thereby giving them food. They give the kids an education so that the kid can not only raise up and have food, but that they can grow up and then get a job. And they're no longer, they're out of their poverty because education is one of the primary ways to escape poverty. They also help do all these things for the, for the community. Or maybe they, you build a well somewhere and you help dig a well somewhere. Now, for however many years that well is good for, they have fresh water. I don't know if you know, but I didn't, this was shocking to me. But uh, Gracie, we went on a missions trip to Guatemala. In Guatemala, and I learned on that mission trip in Guatemala, more people die from lack of clean water than they do from lack of food. Did you know that? More people die from lack of clean water than from lack of food. And the people in Guatemala are typically very, very short. And it's because of all the illnesses that they get from the waterborne illnesses that they get. And these kids that get really sick often because of their water, they miss school a lot. And so their education is stunted. And they're like, whoa. So bringing them clean water actually is bringing them life and restoration and not just alleviating their poverty, but helping to alleviate their actually their, their impoverished nature. So I think that's the idea. Does that make sense a little bit? Then let's, let's go look at the miracles in Luke 7, unless you guys have a question. All right. So one of the things I want to hope that you understand, whether it's through the podcast or through these studies or whatever it is, is that you don't just turn to Luke chapter seven and go, okay, cool. That was a great speech of Jesus in chapter six. Now we're on to something new in Luke chapter seven. They're often very connected and interrelated. And so every story in Luke seven, and I don't have time to go through every story because we're, we're going to uh, run out of time. And Vinny and I do this on the podcast. So if you listen to the podcast that we did, probably uh, number two on the gospel Luke. what happens is this, Jesus walks up and one of the miracles, and I, I'm just so tempted to tell you like every story in Luke 7, but I'm not going to do that. So one of the stories is, so verse 12, they're approaching the city gate. A dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Luke is really telling you what's going on right now. And that is, she has no male to provide for her in, a, in an economy that is dependent upon the males for provision. She's without provision. And what Jesus does is what? Verse 12, he felt compassion for her, not for the dead son, for her, because she is economically strapped. She has no hope, nothing. She is the essence of the poor. When he raises the child from the dead, he not only restores the child's life, but he restores the woman's economic viability or economic survival now. So I think that's just like a perfect example of the miracles of Jesus were social and economically re restorative. And Luke is telling you that by noting the only son of a, of a mother and she was a widow. There's, there's your clue. Does that make sense? So he also heals a man with a withered hand and obviously the, the man's handicapped. So when his hand gets restored, he can go back to work. So when you begin to look at the miracles of Jesus going, oh, they have an economic impact upon these people. And then there's a woman who enters the house and she worships Jesus. And at the end of this chapter, Jesus, I think maybe the very last verse in the chapter seven, uh, he says, go in peace, uh, shalom. 
uh, and the shalom means be restored back to your community. It's a wholeness of restoration. What I've done for you means you no longer have to be this prostitute or this sinful woman that's, that's an outcast from your society. I'm forgiving your sins and restoring you back to your community. That's what you need now for economic and social viability. So I think we look at the stories in Luke 7 then and go, oh, these stories are now Jesus's way of saying, let me show you what love looks like. I just told you what love looks like. Now let me show you what love looks like. Does that make sense? And then the story about the, very well. Any thoughts, comments, or questions there? We're getting low on time. Let's look at Deuteronomy 15 very quickly. How's that? And then we'll go to Acts 4 very briefly. All right, so Deuteronomy 15 has this verse in the middle of it that says, the poor you will always have. And I think it's verse, yeah, verse 11. The poor will never cease to be in the land. Now, Jesus quotes that verse, and he does quote it, that verse in particular, but he's quoting it to say, you're not doing your job. The reason why you're always going to have poor in the land is because you're not taking care of them. But that's not what the passage means, ultimately, in its original context. Now, I've noted before, and I put that when a biblical author, Old Testament or New Testament, this is just the way they did it. When they quoted a part, like a verse or one part of a verse, they always had the entire passage in mind. So when they quote a part of a verse, the whole passage is in mind. And we, we can tell the way that Paul deals with scripture, that that's exactly what's going on. Matthew does this too. He has the whole passage in mind. So what happens in this passage, however, is what's important earlier. This passage is at verse 11, it's kind of the end of the passage. And it says, verse one, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a remission of debts. And it was a forgiveness of debts, meaning if somebody fell into debt and you took their land from them, give them their land back. Verse two, for in the manner of remission, every creditor should release what he has loaned to his neighbor. That's the land most often. He shall not exact it of his neighbor and his brother because the Lord's remission has been proclaimed. From a foreigner, you may exact it, but your hand shall release whatever of yours is with your brother. However, there will be no poor among you. Since the Lord will surely bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess. If only you listen obediently to the voice of your Lord of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all this commandment which I am commanding you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and he'll you will lend to many nations, but you will not borrow. You will rule over many nations, but they will not rule over you. If there is a poor man, this is the key, verse seven. If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers in any of your towns in the land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother. You shall freely open your hand to him and give generously, lend him sufficient for his need and whatever he lacks. But beware that there's no base thought in your heart saying, the seventh year of remission is near and your eyes hostile towards your brother, and you give him nothing that he may cry to the Lord against you, and it'll be a sin against you. You shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you, when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore, I command you, saying, 
you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. Now, if you note this passage carefully, the way I heard this as a young person in the church was, there's always going to be poor people and you just can't do anything about it. And some poor people can't even be helped. So I, I like the way Helen phrased it earlier, that you give kind of hoping that they get out of their poverty. But we actually, the mentality that I think I grew up in, and it was, you know, they're just going to go buy drugs. They're just going to go do these things. It was almost like a don't bother type of thing. And they quoted this passage, you will always have poor in the land. But if you look at the passage carefully, what Deuteronomy is saying is there's always going to be poor in the land. So you, oh, you need to do this all the time. Because there's going to be poor in the land, then open your hand freely to them. In other words, the passage is actually telling you how to address the fact that there's always poor in the land. And the answer is give. And don't go, you know, it's like six and a half years in. I'm not going to profit from this giving at all. I'm going to give what he needs right now. And then he's going to get his land back in, in three months. And I'm out. I don't want to do this. And no, give freely and don't even worry what year it is. So it's the exact opposite of the way I was taught that passage. Any thoughts or comments or, or questions? Oh, it makes sense. Okay, good. Me. With that in mind, then let's finish up with this. I know we're almost over time uh, here, uh, there. Let's go to Acts 4, 32 through 37. And if somebody wants to read those verses, Acts 4, 32 through 37. And this is not the paradigm that all Christians have to follow. That's not the way to read Acts 4. But let's note what's happening in Acts 4 then. Now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and, and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the, brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. 37, right? Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostle Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So thank you very much. Note that Acts 4.34 quotes Deuteronomy 15, verse 4. In fact, the Greek of Deuteronomy 15, and the Greek is the translation, is identical to the Greek of Acts 4.34 there was not a needy person among them. The point is, you're always going to have the needy in your land. So this is how you deal with it. And when you deal with it this way, there won't be any needy left. So those who quote Deuteronomy 15 verse 11 to say, you're always going to have the poor, might want to read Deuteronomy 15 verse 4 that says there shouldn't be any among you. Because when they are there, and you're always going to have them, this is how you take care of it. And the book of Acts is saying, and the early Christian church was fulfilling this. They were doing it and living it out. Now, note that people still had individual property. This is not total communism or communal living. It still says they anything that belonged to them, they didn't think of it as their own. They still have their own private property. 
And it says that Barnabas sold a piece of land. It doesn't mean that he sold all of it. He, he might have, but who's to say this is his only piece of land? He might have kept other pieces of land for himself. The story in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they lie saying, this is how much money we got for the property, when actually they got less than that. Uh, they got uh, more than that. They just kept the money for themselves. And Peter says, look, you could have kept the rest of the money. We don't care. It's the lying problem that was the problem. So this is not total communism. And communism is this economic principle empowered by nations. So it can't be communism because it's a community of people within a nation. And so it's not that. The point of it is that's what the church was doing, was caring for each other within their own community. Now, and I'll stop with this, maybe. <laughs> and that is, there's always going to be caveats. There's always going to be difficulties. There's always going to be, hey, what do we do in First Thessalonians? Hey, if, you, if you're not going to work, then you're not going to eat. You're abusing this. There's always difficulties. And it's never black and white. It's never simple. It's never easy. And that's why I think the answer of how do we grapple with this and what does it mean for us? I can't tell you what it means because I have to figure out what it means for me and you figure out what it means for you. All right, any questions or comments or thoughts? Hey, Rob, um, I wanted to give a plug if I could real quick. Um, I remember I mentioned the kid that we sponsored uh, last last week, but yeah. there's also an organization called Kiva.org, K-I-V-A, mm -hmm. and they're awesome. It was started by students at San Francisco State, but they do micro loans and they mm -hmm. do them globally. Microfinance is what it's yeah. called, and it's nominal interest rate. But you put, say, example, for example, 500 bucks in this account, and then you can preview needs all around the globe. Yep. So if Habibi in India needs another cow to get her and her three children to that next level. You will finance her and she will pay back. And in our experience, we've gotten like 98% payback and you do build an account. It gets larger mm -hmm. and larger. You don't care about the account. We roll it over into the next person in need. So it is a way of helping out Ukrainians, yes, helping out whoever or anywhere around the globe. Yep. You select the country, you can, you can totally manage it but it is a great organization for doing exactly what we're talking about outside our sphere of immediate. Yeah, that's cool. Trying to be a blessing to others. Yeah. So yeah. love that one. Highly recommend it. Yeah. Microfinancing is great. A great way to do things. Yeah. World Vision's great. We use Dave, uh, Dave Hatfield's uh, Masha, Ma Maisha, Mapia. Cool. And uh, what an incredible, and we're going to get Dave on our podcast here. I hope that you wrestle with this for the rest of your life, right? Because I think that's just the only thing we can do and just not be comfortable with it. I think that's a good place to be is not comfortable. You might not stay there, but at least for a while, we should just not be comfortable. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.